Chapter 18 of The Great Impersonation. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Great Impersonation by E. Phillips Oppenheim. Chapter 18. The doctor, with his usual bluntness, did not hesitate to make it known that this unusual visit was of a private nature. Caroline promptly withdrew, and the two men were left alone in the great hall. The lights in the billiard-room and drawing-room were extinguished. Everyone in the house except a few servants had retired. "'Sir Everard,' the doctor began, "'this return of Lady Dominey's has taken me altogether by surprise. I had intended to-morrow morning to discuss the situation with you.' "'I am most anxious to hear your report,' Dominey said. "'My report is good,' was the confident answer, although I would not have allowed her to have left the nursing home so suddenly had I known there was nothing to keep her there. Lady Dominey, except for one hallucination, is in perfect health mentally and physically. And this one hallucination? That you are not her husband. Dominey was silent for a moment, then he laughed a little unnaturally. Can a person be perfectly sane, he asked, and yet be subject to an hallucination which must make the whole of her surroundings seem unreal? Lady Dominey is perfectly sane, the doctor answered bluntly, and as for that hallucination, it is up to you to dispel it. Perhaps you can give me some advice, Dominey suggested. I can, and I am going to be perfectly frank with you, the doctor replied. To begin with, then, there are certain obvious changes in you which might well minister to Lady Dominey's hallucination. For instance, you have been in England now some eight months, during which time you have revealed an entirely new personality. You seem to have got rid of every one of your bad habits. You drink moderately, as a gentleman should. You have subdued your violent temper, and you have collected around you where your personality could be the only inducement friends of distinction and interest. This is not at all what one expected from the Everard Dominey who scuttled out of England a dozen years ago. "'You are excusing my wife,' Dominey remarked. "'She needs no excuses,' was the brusque reply. "'She has been a long-enduring and faithful woman, suffering from a cruel illness brought on, to take the kindest view of it, through your clumsiness and lack of discretion. Like all good women,' forgiveness is second nature to her. It has now become her wish to take her proper place in life. But if her hallucination continues, Dominey asked, if she seriously doubts that I am indeed her husband, how can she do that? That is the problem you and I have to face, the doctor said sternly. The fact that your wife has been willing to return here to you while still subject to that hallucination is a view of the matter which I can neither discuss nor understand. I am here to-night, though, to lay a charge upon you. You have to remember that your wife needs still one step towards a perfect recovery, and until that step has been surmounted you have a very difficult but imperative task. Dominey set his teeth for a moment. He felt the doctor's keen gray eyes glowing from under his shaggy eyebrows as he leaned forward, his hands upon his knees. "'You mean,' Dominey suggested quietly, "'that until that hallucination has passed 
we must remain upon the same terms as we have done since my arrival home? You've got it, the doctor assented. It's a tangled-up position, but we've got to deal with it, or rather, you have. I can assure you, he went on, that all her other delusions have gone. She speaks of the ghost of Roger Unthank, of the cries in the night, of his mysterious death as parts of a painful past. She is quite conscious of her several attempts upon your life, and bitterly regrets them. Now we come to the real danger. She appears to be possessed of a passionate devotion towards you, whilst still believing that you are not her husband. Dominey pushed his chair back from the fire as though he felt the heat. His eyes seemed glued upon the doctor's. I do not pretend, the latter continued gravely, to account for that, but it is my duty to warn you, Sir Everard, that the devotion may lead her to great lengths. Lady Dominey is naturally of an exceedingly affectionate disposition, and this return to a stronger condition of physical health and a fuller share of human feelings has probably reawakened all those tendencies which her growing fondness for you and your position as her reputed husband make perfectly natural. I warn you, Sir Everard, that you may find your position an exceedingly difficult one. But, difficult though it may be, there is a plain duty before you. Keep and encourage your wife's affection, if you can. But let it be a charge upon you that whilst the hallucination remains that affection must never pass certain bounds. Lady Dominey is a good and sweet woman. If she woke up one morning with that hallucination still in her mind, and any sense of guilt on her conscience, all our labors for these last months might well be wasted and she herself might very possibly end her days in a madhouse. Doctor, Dominey said firmly, I appreciate every word you say. You can rely upon me. The doctor looked at him. I believe I can, he admitted with a sigh of relief. I am glad of it. There is just one more phase of the position, Dominey went on, after a pause. Supposing this hallucination of hers should pass— supposing she should suddenly become convinced that I am her husband. In that case, the doctor replied earnestly, the position would be exactly reversed, and it would be just as important for you not to check the affection which she might offer to you as it would be in the other case for you not to accept it. The moment she realizes, with her present predispositions, that you really are her lawful husband, that moment will be the beginning of a new life for her. Somehow they both seemed to feel that the last words had been spoken. After a brief pause the doctor helped himself to a farewell drink, filled his pipe, and stood up. The car which Dominey had ordered from the garage was already standing at the door. It was curious how both of them seemed disinclined to refer again even indirectly to the subject which they had been discussing. "'Very good of you to send me back,' the doctor said gruffly. I started out all right, but it was a drear walk across the marshes. I am very grateful to you for coming, Dominey replied, with obvious sincerity. You will come and have a look at the patient in a day or two? I'll stroll across as soon as you've got rid of some of this houseful, the doctor promised. Good night. The two men parted, and curiously enough Dominey was conscious that with those few awkward words of farewell, some part of the incipient antagonism between them had been buried. Left to himself 
he wandered for some moments up and down the great dimly lit hall. A strange restlessness seemed to have fastened itself upon him. He stood for a time by the dying fire, watching the gray ashes, stirred uneasily by the wind which howled down the chimney. Then he strolled to a different part of the hall, and one by one he turned on, by means of the electric switches, the newly installed lights which hung above the somber oil pictures upon the wall. He looked into the faces of some of these dead dominies, trying to recall what he had heard of their history, and dwelling longest upon a gallant of the Stuart epoch whose misdeeds had supplied material for every intimate chronicler of those days. When at last the sight of a sleepy manservant hovering in the background forced his steps upwards, he still lingered for a few moments in the corridor and turned the handle of his bedroom door with almost reluctant fingers. His heart gave a great jump as he realized that there was someone there. He stood for a moment upon the threshold, then he laughed shortly to himself at his foolish imagining. It was his servant who was patiently awaiting his arrival. "'You can go to bed, Dickens,' he directed. "'I shall not want you again to-night. We shoot in the morning.' The man silently took his leave, and Dominey commenced his preparations for bed. He was in no humor for sleep, however, and, still attired in his shirt and trousers, he wrapped a dressing-gown around him, drew a reading-lamp to his side, and threw himself into an easy-chair, a book in his hand. It was some time before he realized that the volume was upside down, and even when he had righted it the words he saw had no meaning for him. All the time a queer procession of women's faces was passing before his eyes. Caroline, with her half-flirtatious, wholly sentimental, bon camaraderie, Stephanie, with her voluptuous figure and passion-lit eyes, and then, blotting the others utterly out of his thoughts and memory, Rosamund, with all the sweetness of life shining out of her eager face. He saw her as she had come to him last, with that little unspoken cry upon her tremulous lips and the haunting appeal in her soft eyes. All other memories faded away. They were as though they had never been. Those dreary years of exile in Africa, the day-by-day -day tension of his precarious life, were absolutely forgotten. His heart was calling all the time for an unknown boon. He felt himself enmeshed in a world of cobwebs, a weakness more potent than all his boasted strength. Then he suddenly felt that the madness which he had begun to fear had really come. It was the thing for which he longed yet dreaded most. The faint click, the soft withdrawal of the panel, actually pushed back by a pair of white hands. Rosamund herself was there. Her eyes shone at him, mystically, wonderfully. Her lips were parted in a delightful smile, a smile in which there was a spice of girlish mischief. She turned for a moment to close the panel, then she came towards him with her finger upraised. "'I cannot sleep,' she said softly. "'Do you mind my coming for a few minutes?' "'Of course not,' he answered. "'Come and sit down.' She curled up in his easy-chair. "'Just for a moment.' she murmured contentedly. "'Give me your hands, dear. But how cold! You must come nearer to the fire yourself.' He sat on the arm of her chair, and she stroked his head with her hands. "'You were not afraid, then,' she asked, "'when you saw me come through the panel?' 
"'I should never be afraid of any harm that you might bring me, dear,' he assured her. "'Because all that foolishness is really gone,' she continued eagerly. "'I know that whatever happened to poor Roger, it was not you who killed him. Even if I heard his ghost calling again tonight, I should have no fear. I can't think why I ever wanted to hurt you, Everard. I am sure that I always loved you.' His arm went very softly around her. She responded to his embrace without hesitation. Her cheek rested upon his shoulder. He felt the warmth of her arm through her white fur-lined dressing-gown. "'Why do you doubt any longer, then?' he asked hoarsely. "'That I am your husband.' She sighed. "'Ah, but I know you are not,' she answered. "'Is it wrong of me to feel what I do for you, I wonder? You are so like, yet so unlike him.' he is dead. He died in Africa. Isn't it strange that I should know it? But I do. But who am I, then? he whispered. She looked at him pitifully. I do not know, she confessed, but you are kind to me, and when I feel you are near I am happy. It is because I wanted to see you that I would not stay any longer at the nursing home. That must mean that I am very fond of you. You are not afraid? he asked to be here alone with me? She put her other arm around his neck and drew his face down. I am not afraid, she assured him. I am happy. But, dear, what is the matter? A moment ago you were cold. Now your head is wet, your hands are burning. Are you not happy because I am here? Her lips were seeking his. His own touched them for a moment. Then he kissed her on both cheeks. She made a little grimace. I am afraid, she said, that you are not really fond of me. Can't you believe, he asked hoarsely, that I am really Everard, your husband? Look at me. Can't you feel that you have loved me before? She shook her head a little sadly. No, you are not Everard, she sighed. But, she added, her eyes lighting up, you bring me love and happiness and life and... A few seconds before, Dominey felt from his soul that he would have welcomed an earthquake, a thunderbolt, the crumbling of the floor beneath his feet, to have been spared the torture of her sweet importunities, yet nothing so horrible as this interruption which really came could ever have presented itself before his mind. Half in his arms, with her head thrown back, listening, he too, horrified, convulsed for a moment even with real physical fear, they heard the silence of the night broken by that one awful cry, the cry of a man's soul in torment, imprisoned in the jaws of a beast. They listened to it together until its echoes died away. Then what was, perhaps, the most astonishing thing of all, she nodded her head slowly, unperturbed, unterrified. "'You see,' she said, "'I must go back. He will not let me stay here he must think that you are Everard. It is only I who know that you are not. She slipped from the chair, kissed him, and walking quite firmly across the floor, touched the spring and passed through the panel. Even then she turned around and waved a little goodbye to him. There was no sign of fear in her face, only a little dumb disappointment. The panel glided to and shut out the vision of her. Dominey, held his head like a man who fears madness. End of chapter 18 Recording by Tom Weiss